Sisters, I'm Nat. And I'm Kat, and welcome to The Crime Chat. I am your forensic femme fatale, and Natalie is your true crime addict connoisseur. We're just two normal girls who obsess about dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown. And here is your disclaimer chatters. The following crime chat contains adult content, violent oh. scenarios, drug oh. use, all oh. the things. Oh. So your listener discretion is advised. It's going to be another doozy. Well... You've been warned. And before we get into today's crime chat, Kat, what have you done? I am still watching Night Country, The True Detective. Yeah. So it only comes out on Sundays, which you know me. I'm a binger. <laughs> I don't like waiting. But this one I am waiting for. So I had a friend on Facebook mm. basically say, why am I wasting my time with The Night Country? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I love it. Why? They don't like it? Apparently. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, I love it. And then I need to go back to watching Only Murders in the Building. I just haven't had a lot of time. Just been busy, busy, yeah. busy. But I am on Pins and Needles uh-huh. for February 25th. Which is? The Walking Dead, <gasps> Rick and Michonne, The Ones Who Live. Ooh, and that's on yes. AMC. That's on AMC. Yes. I got it's on I- AMC. And I think that one also is going to be a week to week. But trust me, I will be there and I will live in all its glory. Yeah. I got to check that out. I have to get AMC. I'll do it. I'll do it. You got me hooked on. There's some great stuff on there. So that like Mayfair Witches on there, Interview with mm. the Vampire, the new one. Oh, okay. Interview with the Vampire series and Rice's Interview with the Vampire. It's uh, the guy who played Grey Worm. Yeah. Yeah. He's the main character on Interview with the Vampire. Wait, he's Lestat? He's not Lestat. He is. Louis? Louis. He's yeah. Louis. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, because Louis's got to be that tortured, sexy guy. Oh, he's sexy. Yeah. He is sexy. <laughs> <laughs> he is. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's about it. I just, you know, doing doing the busy life, trying to stay sane. How about you? <laughs> well, okay. So I'm looking up this girl's name. Who the hell is the girl that I just, I don't, maybe you, you probably know her. Okay. So I have been watching True Detective. Yes. And- I started wa- watching. I'm not going to get to season four with Jodie Foster yet. I want to watch the other three first. So yeah, I did the first season with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. And yes, although at times it was a little dragged out, great story, freaky yep. story. The last episode was like, what the hell? Yeah. I don't know. I, but Actually, since you said you started from the beginning, I'm thinking, man, I need to go back and like rewatch those. It was a good episode. It was a good series. Yeah. The first series was good. But then I watched season number two and mm-hmm. I, I – it had all the makings of being like a really – like just being as good as season number one. And But I was uh-huh. really disappointed. Like, okay. Really? Unfortunately, there were so many great actors in season two. Like the girl from Mean Girls who also mm-hmm. played in The Notebook. What is her name? She played Regina George. What is her uh, name? Rachel, Rachel McAdams? Yes. Love her. Okay. Yeah. Love her. She's an amazing actress. Beautiful girl. Love her. Love Vince Vaughn. He, he was an amazing character in that. Mm-hmm. Also, you know what? What's the other one? Colin Firth? I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever. That bad guy. That... I just remembered Vince Vaughn was in another one. Okay. He, he plays a really good – like, he plays another person that – a bad dude, but he's got these – characteristics that you kind of feel for him and and you connect with the character Mm -hmm. he did a great job yeah i was just disappointed in it got way too confusing because by the end the story was all over the place you couldn't really keep up because there were so many moving parts and it really wasn't Mm -hmm. 
it, it just didn't read detective anymore to me. It was just like a heist that went wrong and okay. they're fleeing the country and all that. I'm like, no, I'm like, uh, I don't know. Like it just, it seemed a little scattered. So I just yeah. finished that last night. I'm starting season three tonight. Okay. And they each episode's an hour long. So that means I'll be done by morning. <laughs> If you watch it all the way through. Because I'll do that. You know I'll do that. Yeah, yeah. That one, I, it's for, funny. From what I remember, that one was dark. Yeah, because it has a lot of sex trafficking and all that yeah. jazz. And yeah. it is dark. But it just, I don't know. Like, it was good. It was good. And then we got to, like, episode seven where or eight where now there were so many moving parts where I'm like, all right, I can't keep up anymore. And mm-hmm. The, the real focus, the real story I felt got lost a little bit. And they brought it back okay. at the uh, for the last episode, but I just felt like yeah. there was a big disconnection between, you know, like episode six to the last episode. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they'll do better. So I can't wait to start season three. Well, I, I'm obsessed with Night Country. It's dark. It's yeah. freaky. It's mysterious. It's a lot of things. I think it's great. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, no that's but, <laughs> for those no. that aren't watching it, but I think it's fantastic, and I can't wait to see what happens. Listen, I'm doing all my homework now so I can get to Night Country. So okay. I figured I'll be watching. <laughs> You're doing your due diligence. I'm doing my. I'm not just gonna jump into season four. Like I need to watch the other seasons, and then when I get to season four, I am ready for a Jodie Foster fucking beatdown. Like. She's yes. an amazing actress. So, do you remember? I think I had we talked about it before when I was like, I don't know, preteen or so. Mm-hmm. I had so many people tell me that I look like Jodie Foster. Do you remember that? I do, and I still <laughs> I still stand by what I said. You're way prettier than Jodie Foster. No shade, Jodie, but I'm, you know, Cat Adams. I'm thinking. <laughs> well, I'm thinking Silence of the Lambs, Jodie Foster. Mm. <laughs> she was hot then, but you're still you're still prettier than her, even even when she's there. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, other than that, I went and I did a facial. So I don't know if you noticed, Yay. but I'm I'm a little swollen and I can't wear lashes. But like I did a what they call a Yonka facial, which is a Yonka skincare line. And I figured, let me do it. And I did it. And the, the esthetician was like, do not, whatever you do, do not put a stitch of makeup on. I'm like, I got a podcast, girl. Like I need to put some oh. makeup on. <laughs> <laughs> so I, d- I did a little makeup, but like, yeah, I'm a little swollen, so. Okay. But that's about oh, it. I couldn't tell. You look like your normal beautiful self. Oh, thank you. Yanka. <laughs> Yanka. Well, the story today is uh, we're going to want to go back to to fantasy and, and different lands because this is a hell of a story. Really? Yeah. yeah. I, I know of this story. I'm going to have nightmares. Really? Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Well, I know the story you're doing today. You asked me to mm-hmm. do an intro on the dark side of the music industry. Yeah. There's so much. This I know. This just keeps on giving. <laughs> I had to pick. I had to na- not that I could ever narrow it down. There's so many mm-hmm. so much crime, mystery, unsolved crimes mm. in the music industry where mm-hmm. I'm like, you know what? Let me just pick a couple out. And I figured uh, I just picked a couple out that I think that you w- would know and maybe one that you don't know. Okay. But murders within the mu- music industry have occurred throughout history, mm. often sparked widespread shock and speculation, but mm-hmm. I picked some notable cases. All right. Okay. Number one, Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. Yeah. Now, Tupac was West Coast. Biggie is East Coast. 
Because I remember when he filmed his video, uh, what was the video? When he was coming out of his car, he was in the Bronx. Oh. I love it when you call me Big Papa. No, it's the other one, is it? Wait, wait, wait. Hypnotize. Oh, yeah. Hypnotize. Yes, yes, yes. I remember when that video was created. Yeah. I'm not going to say how old I am, but I remember when that video was created and it was a huge- (laughs) When he was filming for it. Yes. And there was a huge buzz like in the Bronx neighborhood and in the Brooklyn Brooklyn Mm -hmm. neighborhood that somebody, Mm -hmm. that that people were just talking about it. Like, oh, there was film crew and da, 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 da. So- Yeah. Yeah. Well- But I mean, in in New York City, you get people filming stuff all the time, don't you? Rappers really have like- they're very when you when you're a successful i think when it comes to r&b or i guess rap r&b or jazz it really does ring like you're just if you're good at it it's easy to spread the word about you and and kind of like people start like the wu-tang clan you step out out, that's right you you walk (laughs) out of new york you don't know who the wu-tang clan is but you step into staten Mm -hmm. island and we're like oh yes the wu-tang clan like you know, they yeah. walk into yeah. a restaurant. Nobody's charging them for shit. Like, <laughs> please yeah. sit down. Please. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. But the, perhaps the most famous and unsolved murders in the music industry are of those of Tupac and Christopher Wallace, which who is better mm-hmm. known as Notorious B.I.G. They are two influential figures in the hip-hop world during the 1990s. Tupac was fatally shot in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas in 1996, and Biggie was killed mm-hmm. in a similar fashion in Los Angeles, 1997. Biggie, why did you go to L.A.? You should have stayed on the East Coast. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I remember bawling when Tupac was yeah. killed. It's just senseless. Senseless. Yeah. And Aaliyah. Oh. The, like, those are my two favorite Aaliyah. Of the era. I did get to see Aaliyah in concert in 1997. Oh, really? That I will always cherish for the rest of my life. But yeah, we're like the same age. You're a beautiful girl. Yes. You know what's scary about Aaliyah's story is that, remember, she was also married to um, Kelly. What's his name? R. Kelly. R. Kelly. And he was married to her when she was like 13, 14 years old. He lied about her age and... Yep. Just to think she might have had some hard situations in her life and she just... I loved her in The Queen of the Damned. Yep. Yeah. In my head, nobody could ever play that role ever again. That's it. Yeah. And I yeah. think I think she died before that movie came out, like right before or right after. I think I think so too. I think she so I've seen a lot of feed about the the anniversary of her passing. Yeah. So it must have hit like the 25-year mark. There was a picture that had just, you know, through my feet or whatever. It had Aaliyah and then Left Eye Lopez from TLC, who yeah. also died in a plane crash. Yes. Crazy. Yeah. But we're not talking about accidents. We're talking about... I know. Murders. I know. <laughs> but, okay. You digress. I just, you know, when you when you mentioned Aaliyah, in my head also, like, I feel like... It's, same thing with... Not to digress or anything, but okay. So, same thing like the way I feel <laughs> about James, uh, James Manfield... And Marilyn Monroe, I feel like mm-hmm. Jane Mansfield kind of paved the road a little bit for Marilyn to, you mm-hmm. know, because remember when Marilyn was coming up is when Jane, uh, Jane died. Yeah. And if you look at pictures of Jane Mansfield, you're like, whoa, that it, she kind of like started the blonde bombshell before mm-hmm. it was popular. And then Marilyn mm-hmm. kind of took the reins from there and was the girl. Yeah. And I yeah. feel like Aaliyah... She when she passed away, like we had such a void mm-hmm. there, and we were filling it with other artists. And I think that, like you know, artists, and I, I love Rihanna, I love Beyonce, but I feel like 
if she was still alive, we'd be singing a different tune. Yeah. Like, I think she would be the queen bee. Yeah. I, I truly do. Yeah. All right. Well, as we know, the circumstances around their death include theories of gang involvement mm-hmm. and feuds mm-hmm. between rival record labels and feuds of uh, numerous investigations yeah. and documentaries and conspiracy theories. I think they actually got Tupac's killer. Oh. They, they, they just arrested somebody for his murder, and I believe it was somebody that was like the driver of mm-hmm. the car. Yes. Okay. That shot I him. Seen that. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. So, yeah. Number two, John Lennon. Oh, he makes a cameo appearance in our story today. Does he? Okay. Well, the former Beatle and legendary musician John Lennon was tragically shot and killed outside the New York City building called the Dakota in 1980. He was assassinated by Mark David Chapman. He had been stalking Lennon for days before the murder. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. I mean, 1980. We were so young. Yeah, I don't. Like, I, was, was like super, I mean, super I, young. I've always growing up. I remember that he was killed, mm-hmm. but and I was alive, but I don't remember that actually happening. Yeah, and the Dakota. Dakota is a very elusive place. So, like, honestly, I don't know anybody that's ever been inside the Dakota. I guess it's really exclusive, like apartment building. But mm-hmm. I can't. Like, I couldn't tell you where it is. Like. I don't know where it is. Mm. I don't know where it's located. It's a huge mansion style apartment, like almost like the the place w- that show only murders inside the building. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to say that's either in the Dakota or like something like the Dakota. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Very exclusive. Very exclusive. Yeah. Chapman was convicted of second degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Mm-hmm. Number three was another story you did, Marvin Gaye. Yes. The yeah. sole icon Mar- Marvin Gaye was shot and killed by his father, mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye Sr., in 1984. The murder occurred following a heated argument between the two men at their family's home in Los Angeles. Gaye Sr. pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to six years of, of probation. He got off easy. He got off easy. Yeah. I feel... Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Number four, Selena. Do you remember her? Oh, well, yes, of course. I I also remember her, but uh, her killer's been in the news lately. I know, I know. Well, she was a beloved music star who tragically yes. was murdered by the president of her fan club, Yolanda Sal- Salvazar? Salvazar? Salvador. Salvador? Ask Alexa. <laughs> who killed Alexa. Selena? <laughs> who killed Selena? Yolanda Saldivar assassinated Saldivar. Saldivar. That's Saldivar. Alexis' pronunciation. Oh, okay. So Salvador, we're, we're pretty close. All right. Salvador. This happened in 1995. Salvador mm-hmm. had been embezzling money from Selena's fan club when she was confronted about this by Selena. She shot Selena in the motel room in Corpus Christi, mm-hmm. Texas. And I remember she shot her from the back. Yeah. Oh, she was convicted of yeah. murder and sentenced to life in prison. When Yeah, she was confronting her. Selena was confronting her about yeah. the money and, like, how could you do this? and Right. Yeah. And do you know if she's so, getting off? Like, what? why is she in the news? She's doing a documentary on the secrets of their relationship that people don't know between Yolanda and Selena. Oh, all right. Well. But she, you know, but Selena can't tell her side. No. And she's in prison, so she's. Right. Like, what's she going to do with the money? Right. Spend it at the commissary? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she's, I don't know. She should rot in hell. I mean, seriously. Yeah. But you know what? Selena's legacy still lives on today. So thank God for that. Yes, it does. Number five, the murder of Sam Cooke. Do you know who Sam Cooke is? Sam Cooke, Sam Cooke. 
No. No? Okay. He is a pioneering soul singer and songwriter. He was shot and killed under the mysterious circumstances in 1964. The official ruling was that Cook was killed in self-defense by the manager of the motel, which which he allegedly <laughs> became violent. And mm-hmm. therefore, the theory suggests that there was foul play and cover-up. Sam Cook. Oh, my God. All right. Mm. Sam Cook songs. Twisting the Night Away. Ask Alexa to play Twisting the Night Away from Sam Cook. Alexa, play Twisting the Night Away by Sam Cook. Here's Twisting the Night Away by Sam Cook on Amazon Music. Can you hear it? No. Is it playing? Somewhere up a New York way. You have to you have to listen to some Sam Cooke songs. He's really talented. Sad that that this happened to him. Number six, the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> While not directly related to the music industry, the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, a predominant labor union leader, has been linked to the music world through his connections with organized crime figures who had ties to the music industry. Hoffa vanished in 1975 and was rumored to have been involved in various criminal activities, including connections to the recording industry. So I believe that. I totally well, believe there'll that. be a cameo appearance by a mafia member oh, really? in the story. Oh, <laughs> yes. Okay. It's got it fucking all. It's got it all. It's like Prego. It's in there. <laughs> <laughs> so here are some song and ballads that I collected that were based mm-hmm. on true crime stories. So many musicians oh. have written songs inspired by mm-hmm. true crime mm-hmm. stories. These songs mm-hmm. often recount the details of specific crimes, the lives of notorious criminals, the experiences of the victims, or maybe law enforcement details or, or officials. Mm-hmm. Examples Mm -hmm. include Hurricane by Bob Dylan, which tells the story of Reuben Hurricane Carter, a boxer wrongfully convicted of murder. Oh, okay. Another one was The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia by Vicki Lawrence. You know that song? Well, that was a Reba McIntyre. Oh, she redid it? That's the night that the lights went out in Georgia. (laughs) I've never heard that. I don't think I've ever really heard the song. It's about the twisted, backward, good old boy. Good old boy. Ta- thing. Good old boy in, uh, in well, Georgia. Yeah, well, this good is... Good boy, a political, judicial system. This was influenced by a real crime. So this tells the story of a fictionalized account of a murder mystery. The story, the song mm-hmm. tells the story mm-hmm. of a man who returns home to find his wife cheating on him mm-hmm. with another man. And in a mm-hmm. fit of rage, he kills both of them. Mm-hmm. The story is narrated from the perspective of the narrator's younger sister who watches the events unfold, ultimately testifies against her brother, leading to his wrongful conviction and execution. Wrongful? Well, if he kills him, not wrongful. <laughs> Okay, well, some artists create concept albums as well that revolve around true crime themes Mm -hmm. with each song contributing to like a a larger narrative to the story. Mm -hmm. So examples of this include The Black Parade by My Chemical Romance, Mm -hmm. which follows the story of a dying cancer patient reflecting on his own life and and mortality. The other one is American Gangster by Jay-Z, which is inspired by the life of notorious drug trafficker Frank Lucas. 
Overall, true crime stories within the music industry have captured the public's interest due to their intrigue, mystery, and connection to well-known musicians and figures. Well, there's a rock band, heavy metal, heavy rock band called Ice Nine Kills. Right. And they have their whole album, well, one of their albums, I should say, Mm -hmm. is called The Silver Screams. Right. And each song is based on a horror film. He does It, he does Freddy Krueger, he does The Crow. Yeah. He does, uh, I'm trying to think of all this other. I got to check that out. I have to check that out. Okay, that sounds good. They're catch. some of like get like really heavy, but mm-hmm. it's it's so catchy and I love his voice. Okay, so. I'll check that out. Oh, yeah. I hope that sets you up oh. for your story, girl, because I cannot wait yes. to learn about this guy that you're going to talk about. Did you drink some tea? Are your vocal cords warmed up? No. Wine. We're going to do. I can't. I can't feel my vocal cords because of the wine. But let's. Yeah. (laughs) Well, chatters, we're going to be talking about Phil Spector. Mm. He was well known for several hits that topped the charts, and also murder. Dun dun dun. On February third, two thousand and three. Alhambra, California police, received a 911 call from a driver who said he thought his boss just killed someone. The driver, identified as Adriano de Souza, begged the police to send a car to 1700 Grandview Drive, which is behind me. It was the home of the famed musician and producer Phil Spector. As police were en route, the dispatcher stayed on line with Adriano and said, Why do you think your boss just killed someone? And Adriano said, because there was a lady on the floor and his boss had a gun in the, in his hand. <laughs> if that's not damning, I don't know what is. He's like getting fired. <laughs> <laughs> well, we kind of get to his, he, he wasn't a permanent employee okay. of Phil Spector. <laughs> At the time, because police had very limited information, they just knew there was a shooting, somebody was dead. Uh-huh. They didn't know the kind of danger level situation that they were going to be facing, so they did the smart thing and made a tactical entry. Upon arriving, you know, that's when you look, you watch the movies, and they're like, clear! Right. Clear! They're assessing the situation. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Once they kind of said, okay, the situation's over, like everything's calm, uh-huh. they turned out a recorder and began to talk to Phil. These are some of Phil's comments that were on the officer's recorder. Oh, boy. Quote, I'm sorry this happened. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. And I'm sorry it happened. I'm not drunk, and I'm not stupid. I can tell you what happened. End quote. And here's another series. Quote, you don't have to handcuff me. I can tell you what happened. What's wrong with you people? What the hell is wrong with you people? You people, of course, being the Alhambra police officers. And then at one point, Phil could be heard yelling at the officers, quote, Get the fuck off me. This is stupid. I'm sorry there's a dead woman here, but I'm sorry this happened. She works at the House of Blues. It was a mistake. I don't understand what the fuck you people is wrong with you. The gun went off accidentally. End quote. Wow. Like, his speech was all over the place, as you can tell, too. So, (laughs) Obviously, police officers get there, get to the scene, secure everything, assess what's going on. They call in the detectives. The detectives arrive. Immediately, they identify the scene of a shooting. Which, this actually occurred just inside of the front door. They found a young, beautiful female sitting in a chair, slightly slouched, like slouched back in the chair like this. Right. Her legs were straight out, flat, arms off the side of the arms of the chair. 
her purse was over her right shoulder in the chair, like as she's slouched in the chair. She had her purse on. As if she came in, she plopped down. Yeah. It had been a long day at work, if you can imagine. Yeah. Like, she was in that position, and police believe that she was in that position when she was shot. Okay. The gun was on the floor just underneath her legs, which is interesting because we'll get to it. Nugget. <laughs> Nuggy. <laughs> Based on the preliminary investigation, Phil Spector was taken into custody. Now, at this point in Spector's life and career, he rarely talked to media. It had been more than 20, maybe 25 years since his last formal interview. But just weeks before the incident, he agreed to be interviewed by Mick Brown, a journalist with Telegraph magazine in England. And throughout the story, I'm going to refer to the recordings, which is going to actually be recordings of Mick's interview with Phil. Overall, Mick Brown recalled Phil Spector was a legendary figure, legendary to all who loved him, that loved rock and roll. But Chatters, we're going to talk about who the heck was Phil Spector. If you don't know, huh? you're about to know. <laughs> Harvey Philip Spector. He was born December 26, 1939. He later added an, a second L to his middle name, Philip. Mm-hmm. When he was born, there was only it was a one L Philip. Mm-hmm. He later added a second L. And then he chose to go by Philip two L's versus his first name, Harvey. Okay. So he went by Philip or Phil. He was born to parents Benjamin or Ben, an iron worker, and Bertha Spector. And Phil was a first-generation immigrant uh, Russian-Jewish family in the Bronx. Both of his parents, actually his mom was born in France. His dad, I believe, was born in Russia. I didn't really include it in here, but their last name was Spector, S-P-E-K-T-E-R, something like that. Okay. But they're both of their last names was Spector. And then when they got married, they changed it to S-P-E-C-T-O-R. And Phil, there was something I read that said Phil thought that his parents were first cousins. I was going to say, why would they have the same? That's odd. That's a very very big coincidence. (laughs) Phil also had an older sister, Shirley. She was six years older than he was. She'll kind of come into play too. But for the most part, happy childhood. Like as a young kid, there was no trouble in the family like early on until he was about nine. Mm-hmm. His father committed suicide. Oh, my God. Ben, dad, he left home to go, presumably to go to work that day, and parked his car on the side of the road, got out, took a tube for his exhaust, put it inside of the car, and killed himself, died of asphyxiation. Wow. Journalist Mick Brown said that for what he thought during the, doing the interview with Phil, that this was the bomb that really went off in Phil's life. In the recorded interview, Phil could be heard saying, quote, I don't like talking about the past. It's difficult for me. Difficult time. With, like, losing my dad, it was very, very emotional. I was too young to understand the value of losing my dad. Old enough to feel the loss, but not old enough to appreciate the loss until I was much older. End quote. Wow. Yeah. Now, Phil's daughter, Nicole Spector, she said that her father was traumatized by the loss of his father, Ben. And she said she didn't think that her father, Phil... It was actually ever, like, dealt with that trauma. I mean, it was the late 40s. Yeah. Like, therapy and mental health resources, they're not what they are today. No. And, you know, we've got grief and coping mechanisms, grief counselors, coping mechanisms. And Phil told Nicole at one point as well that he was diagnosed when he was young. Or he was manic depressive and yeah. also had bipolar. Oh. While there was no clear reason why Ben killed himself, 
There were some things that I read that said it, it might have been over money. He might have been in a lot of debt. I mean, I mean, they were you know, immigrants into the country trying to make it. He was an iron worker. He worked hard for his family, but maybe just wasn't making ends meet. However, a more plausible reason journalist Mick Brown said was that Ben was suffering from mental illness. He thought that because Phil's sister, Shirley, had developed mental illness, was in and out of institutions for many years, and then subsequently after Ben died, both Shirley and Bertha, they would alternately like smother Phil and then bully Phil. Just like take turns going back and forth at each other. Right. I mean, he was nine when his father died and his mother and his sister are doing this for like years, just kind of beating at him. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of rough on him. So Brown felt that Phil, with this, with his, the passing of his father, had a sense of abandonment and then also a sense of guilt and that he had carried that probably for the uh, likely the duration of his life. Yeah. And now understanding Phil's upbringing, Nicole, his daughter, said that she felt her father was very precocious and ambitious as a young person trying to basically like overcome the obstacles that had been set before him. And after the passing of his father, the remaining Spectre family moved from New York City to Los Angeles, where Phil had hoped that he would make it into the music industry. He would eventually would attend Fairfax High School. And this was actually considered the rock and roll high school. People who they just lived in that area where they went to this high school. A lot of them would come out and become like music producers or singers or performers now, in one of the things that I saw said there was Steve Barry or Mo Austin were names that came out of that school. Uh, I'm sorry, they didn't sound familiar to me, but us also was like the 50s. A long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> it was a long time ago. On a recording, Phil recollected, quote, timing is everything. There's an element of luck in everything in who you are, where you are, what you are. But I call it timing that I happened to be in Los Angeles in 1958, end quote. A former classmate and friend of Phil's, his name is Russ Teitelman, who was also a, a music producer, remembered meeting Phil for the first time when he was about 13 years old. Mm-hmm. They became very close, and Russ said that Phil was unbelievably charismatic, very smart, very funny, very charming, but he also would lie about things unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. And one example is that when Phil was at Russ's house, apparently he had an appointment. Phil was supposed to be somewhere else. He had an appointment for something. So he called and told the people, I can't make it. We were just in a car accident. Russ said that he would just make shit up like that. (laughs) And the truth was sometimes vague, but he was his, Phil was his own creation. Mm -hmm. Now, Phil said that he realized that he was very different when he was very young. On another recording, Phil said that he used to think that he missed out on things because he wasn't normal. And it made life complicated for him. He felt that he was hated, that he was ostracized, and that he just never really fit in anywhere. But he would also justify it to himself. He looked strange. He acted strange. He made strange music. And he said, quote, so there was a reason that they hated my fucking guts, end quote. Basically, he's doing this thing. He knows that he's strange, but he's like, you can hate me if you want to. I don't care. I'm going to do my thing. Right. (laughs) But he's like justifying it to himself. Now, as a teenager, Phil would often stay in his room, and he began listening to jazz and R&B radio stations in the Los Angeles area, and he became enthusiastic about music just in general. He started to play the jazz guitar, and then he also joined a group of musicians. It was like this community of aspiring artists, Uh and he started writing songs. He formed this group called The Teddy Bears. With Sandy Nelson, Marshall Lieb, Harvey Goldstein, and lead singer 
Carol Connors. Now, when I read Harvey Goldstein, I automatically thought Harvey, Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein. Yeah. And I was like, no, 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 different person. <laughs> <laughs> Carol, the lead singer, she said she remembered Phil would not talk often about his father, but there were two stories that he would tell people. One was that his father shot himself in the car and Phil found him, mm-hmm. like victimizing himself. Like playing the victim himself. Yeah. yeah. And then the other story was that Ben had asphyxiated himself, but never really said how. Carol said, quote, I know it affected Phil. That sort of started him on his journey, but he put his feelings into his music, end quote. During school time, you know, Phil had a social circle. He was dating Carol, the lead singer of the, of the teddy bears. He was dating her friend, Donna, mm-hmm. um, while they were in high school. And then one day, Phil, how this all, the teddy bears all came about, he walked up to Carol and he said, I love your voice. And she was only 16 at the time. And Phil told her that, he, I'm going to write a song for your voice. And he did. Two weeks later, they were in the recording studio. And she remembered, before they started recording, Phil told her, sing the song like you're singing it to your boyfriend. And Carol said, well, I don't have a boyfriend. And then he said, well, then think of your father. Now, this is how the teddy bears started. And soon they were making television appearances. They went on the Perry Como show. During a rehearsal, Carol remembered there was a very high note in the, in the song that they were recording. In the rehearsal, her voice cracked. Okay. They finished the song. Before they started to go, like, recording for the show. Right. Phil pushed her up against the wall and said, if you fuck up my song, I'm going to kill you. Oh, wow. Now, during the actual show, Carol remembered that there was this moment before that high note that was at the top of her range where she... Almost had a look of, like, please, God, let me hit this note. And she did. The record went on to be number one in the world. It was on more charts than any other record in 1958. They were the number one spot for about four to five weeks with the song called To Know Him Is To Love Him. And that's the song that they sang on the Perry Como show. Ironically, the song was taken from Phil's father's headstone, the idea for the song. On his headstone, it said to know him was to love him. Mm-hmm. And Phil took that and turned it into a teenage love song, To Know Him Is To Love Him. Yeah. Okay, so during Phil's interview with Mick Brown, he said, quote, I was motivated by a sense of destiny, and I saw a different kind of music coming out, end quote. The teddy bears are successful. Now they're all teenagers. Mm-hmm. And Bertha decided that Shirley... Phil's older sister needs to manage the group because they're all teenagers. Carol remembered Bertha and Shirley were just like really, really heavily involved and influential. And Phil just kind of like succumbed to them and listened to them. They were just like really involved. And friend Russ, who I mentioned earlier, they went to high school together. He recalled that Phil, Bertha, and Shirley would constantly fight, like screaming at each other constantly. And like any time that they were around each other, the tension was always like really, 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 really high. They couldn't have just like a normal conversation. Yeah. It was a contentious relationship. Yeah. And explosive. Now, Carol added that their agent, the teddy bear's agent at the time, (laughs) got to a point where he could no longer deal with Shirley Spector and said that Shirley was scary. Now, one could say this was Shirley's mental instabilities that were starting to kind of emerge. <laughs> but Carol said that Phil just started to become out of control. He start, his, had some, like, unruly behavior that just really got worse. Yeah. But what he, how he looked at it at was the badder you are, the more successful you're going to be. 
Wow. It was kind of like his mentality with it. Yeah, there's a lot of trauma connection, like a trauma-built relationship between the three of them. Shirley, yeah, Bertha, and Phil. Like, they are mm-hmm. all traumatized by dad's death, and they're trauma bonding. They are trauma bonding. Absolutely. To, to them, this is normal. But to anybody yeah. else looking at this, they're like, they're, they're, these people are fucked. But that's normal. That's kind of like the way they mm-hmm. keep each other in check and also maybe show each other love. I don't know. It's very weird. I don't know. No, with these people, normally when this happens, if they don't get it, they're very unhappy. It's almost like they mm-hmm. feed on that like intensity between each other. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They need it because that's what's normal for them. Right. Right. Yeah. So, but Phil was actually desperate to get away from this, like, defunctional family setup that Mm. he had going on. The teddy bears were touring, and they kind of went and did their thing. They became a hit. But he did decide, because he was still living at home with Bertha and Shirley, that he was going to move back to New York City. And he did. And he started an apprenticeship with Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who were the most successful music producers at the time. And because of this, Phil started to make his way and he started to believe in himself. He was out of that negative environment and negative influence. He even created his own record label called Phyllis, P-H-I-L-L-E-S, in 1960 when at the t- he, was eight- he was 21 years old at the time and he was the youngest ever U.S. label owner wow. at the time. Wow. 21. Wow. Yeah. And most of the leaders and, like, big head honchos in the music industry were older. Mm-hmm. And Phil, recognizing this, that there wasn't a market for teenagers. And so that's what he focused on. And from his history with the teddy bears, I mean, they were all teenagers at the time. Yeah. But that's also where he succeeded. He hit a market that wasn't necessarily looked at before yeah. this. In another recording, Phil said, quote, I wanted to be in the background, but I wanted to be important. And I wanted to be the focal point, end quote. Okay. And he started to build his for- his portfolio in New York. Artists like the Paris Sisters, Bob B. Socks in the Blue Jeans, and the Crystals. Then 13-year-old lead singer of the Crystals, her name is Lala Brooks. She remembered meeting Phil for the first time. Again, she was 13. You just blew my like, mind. Hey. You just blew 13 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> She's like, he's a snazzy dresser. He presented himself well. I mean, 13, if you think, put your brain on and being a 13-year-old, you don't think a 20 or 21-year-old is that old. Right, right. They're in their same age range. Yeah. But she's like, hey, he's a snazzy dresser. You know, he presented himself well. Mm-hmm. He has a nice car. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there was a little incident that occurred. Oh, boy. So Phil decided he wanted to record a song called He's a Rebel. But he wanted to record it in California. Okay. The Crystals, being teenagers, weren't just going to go fly out to California. (laughs) So what Phil did is he went to California and he recorded the song anyway, using other singers, specifically a singer uh, by the name of Darlene Love. My God, Darlene Love is beloved by my family. Like they have every album. Yeah. Darlene Love is really, really talented. When the song came out on the radio... Lala and her friends heard it, and Uh it was announced as, he's a rebel by the Crystals. And she's like, wait a minute. That's not my voice. I didn't sing that song. Right. (laughs) She said they were so upset that Phil did this and that he used their name but recorded somebody somebody else's voices to do this. Nay, nay. And then Lala said the Crystals manager, I think his name was Joe Sicori, 
he had ties to the mafia. Uh. He sent one of his cronies to California to confront Phil. Uh. And allegedly, allegedly, Phil got roughed up a little bit. Okay. And the guy told him, I'm going to kill your mother. I'm going to cut off your legs. You better record the crystals authentically. And then went back to New York. Lala walks in to talk to her manager. And I think, like I said, Joe Socori, I think was his name. He's sitting there laughing with another guy. And he's like, hey, Jim, tell Lala what you just did. So he tells her the story. Phil never told Lala what happened. Never talked about it at all. If, in fact, that it did happen. But from that point on, Phil never went anywhere without bodyguards. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. So while Phil didn't necessarily tell Lala what happened, he did try to make it up to her and flew her and the crystals out to California. They were going to record at the Gold Star Recording Studio. Here is where they recorded the record-breaking song. Da-do, run, 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 da-do, run, run. Yeah. I love that song. Okay, wow. (laughs) (laughs) But this song was written for Darlene Love. And Phil told Darlene this is going to be a Darlene Love original. Oh, boy. He got himself in a little twisty. A little twisty tie. He's playing both sides of the coin right now. He can't do that. He is. He's saying, which one can make me money? Yeah. The same thing happened to Darlene. She turned on the radio and she heard Da Do Run Run sung by the Crystals. And she's like, that was supposed to be my song. Yeah. Oh, wow. But from Phil's perspective, the records that he was making, they weren't Crystals records. They weren't Darlene Love records. They were Phil Spector records. And from the Phyllis production. Yeah. Because he wrote the music. Yeah. He was a songwriter and producer. So it was like, Mm -hmm. you're just, yeah, wow. It's like, these are my, these are my songs. You're singing them for me. (laughs) Wow. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't think of it that way. Okay. The producer became bigger than the stars, bigger than the hits. He was the hit. He was the star. And he began to dominate in the music industry. Songs, when they were written, they weren't written with like a particular group or band in mind. Mm. They were written with a unique sound. It was, he called it the wall of sound. And it was, it was something that kind of established the style of music Mm -hmm. for years to come. Wow. But that's what made him successful was his unique sound, this wall of sound. And he was a master of it. And in a way he demanded attention with his music and he got it. He got attention. But it also made him uncomfortable to be so successful at the same time. There was a couple of interviews that I saw that he would go on and they would try to, you know, make the conversation light and everything. And this is early on. I mean, this yeah. was like black and white, early night show, pre-Johnny Carson, like long time ago. Right. And he just thought they were picking on him. And he's like, you want to go outside? I've got oh. some people outside, like bodyguards. And I was oh. just like... Wait a minute. Was he? Was that like? What was he? He was feeling guilty in a way, maybe about what he was doing. But you know what? Think about it, though. Think of, <laughs> okay, think of the music. Think of think of a song mm-hmm. that you like, right? Or you know what? Mm-hmm. Not a song. Think of an artist that you just you, whatever they touch. You know, like like Elton John. Elton yeah. John is an amazing singer, but his music is well well written from his partner. Mm-hmm. If his partner mm-hmm. took that, like, you know, uh, what's that song uh, that he sang? Candle in the Wind. Yeah, if he yeah. took that song, I, I mean, Elton John nailed it. Nailed it. it you, you, it's hard to envision somebody else singing it. However, if you got George Michael to sing it, come on. Like, I, I think 
if a well-written song really stands the test of time and you really can inter like interchange the artists but we're just so like loyal to our artists that like in Mm -hmm. my head only Elton John can sing that song I don't know well and I think that's the difference and we'll kind of actually get to that in how he started here in like the late 50s and 60s and then when he tried to produce later again and Ah. he saw how it changed yeah yeah he may have felt uncomfortable with the success, but at the same time, he also felt like he deserved it. And some aspects of this success also brought on some paranoia. Mm-hmm. I mean, the bodyguards, but whatever. Probably because he felt like he was his success was on the backs of other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But there was somebody else who also witnessed some of Phil's, uh, we'll just say instability. During a session, the owner of the Gold Star Recording Studio, Dave Starr, he was... Working as like a musician, musical engineer, I guess, something at the time where he was overlaying tracks, like over, overlaying the band in the background to the voices and, and that right. kind of thing, right? He pushed a button and realized, I just erased the choir. And the choir was actually the most expensive part because there's 20 people coming in. They have to pay like each yeah. of individually on a scale. You know what I mean? So so Phil was like, oh, you did what? He's like, <laughs> I, I, I just erased it. He'll, he had this incredulous look on his face dove underneath the console, crawled into the fetal position, and started to sob. And apparently, he cried like this, loudly, obnoxiously, for four hours. It's ridiculous. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. However, as his success did grow, so did his his ego and his demands. Uh (laughs) Now, while Phil was cordial with with the musicians, he apparently was like pretty rude and pretty mean to the singers and didn't really treat them as artists. One of his colleagues, another uh, producer said that the artists were his tools and he used these tools. Again, the songs weren't written for an individual artist. They were written with a unique sound. And if you didn't fit my tool, bye onto somebody else. Uh He saw them as disposable, specifically women. Mm. Mm Mm-mm. Now, Phil said he would say he's comfortable in the studio. Like, his records were the greatest love of his life when he was making them. He lived them. He breathed them. Uh-huh. And he said, quote, that's why I could never have a relationship with anyone that would last. They were my life, end quote. Now, some of the most popular hits that he produced included, and then he kissed me yes, okay. by the Crystals, uh-huh. and then the Ronettes, be my, be my, yes. be my little baby. <laughs> So the Ronettes came into the picture. They became the center of attention to Phil, particularly Veronica Bennett, Uh who would eventually be known as Ronnie Spector. Uh Phil Phil was immediately drawn to Ronnie from the start, but he was married at the time to Annette Marar. I hate when that happens. Yeah, damn it. (laughs) Now, in an interview with Ronnie... She remembered the first night the singers, the Renettes, when they walked in and they met Phil. Phil was sitting at the piano. Uh She said, quote, he looked at me and I looked at him. Uh We made eye contact. And then he said, well, sing me some song. And she remembers singing, why do birds sing so gay? And he stopped her and he said, that's the voice that I've been looking for. Obviously, we know Phil had betrayed his wife, Annette. Yeah. We'll kind of get into that a little bit. But Mick Brown did interview Annette for his article, and she spoke very highly of him. And she said, quote, Phil had qualities of charisma and charm and humor. Uh-huh. 
and he just made my soul fall in love, end quote. And Mick Brown thought just from his interview with her that she was still in love with Phil in a way. She had her family. She kind of went on and, you know, and did her own thing. But Phil also was enamored by Annette. And there was a reason that they fell in love. And as he was producing, he would always engrave Phil plus Annette on every like run out groove of the LP record, like where it's run out. Yeah. Like from picturing a record. Yeah. And where there's there's no lines where the music is. Right, he between, would engrave Phil plus an yeah. Between the label and the lines, there's that one mm-hmm. band. I didn't know yep. that. Wow. The first record that this did not appear on was the Ronettes Be My Baby. Mm. Phil said in his interview, quote, I was a control freak. You have to conquer yourself. You know, you have to really control your own self. Mm. I have devils inside that fight me, and I'm my own worst enemy. For all intents and purposes, I'd say I'm probably relatively insane, end quote. Okay. But crazy people don't know they're crazy, so. Well. (laughs) Now, Darlene Love said that she would hear things about Phil kind of throughout the years, Mm -hmm. and she said, quote, I knew he was crazy, but guns? What are you talking about? Yeah. End quote. Now, she recalled one specific time she was going to the studio for a session with Phil. As she got there, everybody's like running out of the studio. She's like, what's going on? Uh And then somebody had told her, Phil's in there with his guns out. Apparently, Phil was in the studio, uh, supposedly joking around with a gun in his hand. She's like, the the people in the studio are the crazy ones because they let Phil act this way with guns in his hand and like doing all of these things Uh as if the people around him gave him the right to act that way. Yeah. And because they were allowing it to happen, nobody stopped him. Uh So at this point in his career, the Ronettes, uh, one of the other singers, Nedra Tally Ross, she said that she started to notice things about Phil that she just didn't like. And she said he had, quote, unquote, little man insecurities. Uh-huh. If someone would start something with Phil, he would kind of puff his chest up and say, well, I'm, come on, let's go outside. Go outside. I've got two guys right here that are going to take you outside. Oh. His bodyguards. Yeah. He wouldn't go outside. Of course not. But his bodyguards would take him outside. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nedra also recalled one time in 1964 where she witnessed Phil almost have like a mental breakdown. And this is kind of what happened. In 1964, Phil and the Ronettes, they went to the United Kingdom, for, and it was for Phil's first time in the UK. They were connecting up with the Beatles. There were other, like, they were just kind of having this big gathering. Huh. The Beatles actually also happened to be fans of Phil's artists and his work, including the Ronettes. Huh. By 1964, he was a pretty big-time producer. And as he walked in the room, Nedja remembered, like, he just looked nervous and started speaking in a false voice. Like, he was trying to make himself in front of other people look different oh. than who he actually was. Oh. And like she's, he, she has like an, he has like an English accent now? Yeah. All of a sudden. <laughs> Rightio, chap. <laughs> I know people that do that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, they all, like, the, the people who did know him, they're like, what the hell is wrong with him? Like, what is he doing? Phony. Mick Brown, the journalist, though, said that this was kind of a power move in a way. Phil ended up leaving the UK, flying back to New York on the same flight with the Beatles. He was kind of using that as like maybe a symbol of his power, but it didn't actually go in the way that he wanted. As Beatles got off the plane, and this is one of those very famous moments where the Beatles, yeah. their very first time in the US coming that's what off I was the gonna plane. Ask. Yes, that's the, that's the moment. Phil was oh on that my plane. God. Okay. They're greeted by like a conglomerate of press. 
Uh-huh. Fans, thousands of fans everywhere screaming. While in the background, behind the Beatles, is an overlooked figure of Phil Spector. Wow. Phil, at that point, realized that he was at a loss for his sounds, and he didn't know what to do about it. He's like, maybe I'm not as big as I thought I was. I went to the UK to meet with this, the Beatles, and I come back, and it's like, what about me? So he kind of had this, like, mental breakdown of, like, I don't know what to do next. We go maniac, and the Beatles, I mean, that's, like, really the, the fucking first- Beatles. <laughs> the fucking Beatles. And that's, like, the one of the, 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 when things switched over where you were in love with yeah. each Beatle. Like, who ga- gave a shit about who wrote the songs? Like, Phil mm-hmm. McCarthy, I mean, come on. Yeah. Well, he didn't know what to do, mm. but he got an opportunity, and they came in the form of the Righteous Brothers. Oh. And Phil was extremely excited because he knew how great their voices were. And he yes. realized that he needed a fantastic song for these fantastic voices to launch them in their career. Enter in. You've lost that love and feeling. Oh, my God. It oh. became, to date, his biggest record ever, bypassing He's a Rebel from mm-hmm. the Crystals four years earlier, and this kind of gives him his second wind. Now, during his interview with Mick Brown, Phil said, quote, this song is the most played song in the history of music, end quote. Mm. Probably. Yeah. I mean. It's a great song. It was it's on. It was song. on Top Gun. Yeah. <laughs> which song. probably made it outreach even more <laughs> mm-hmm. for people like me in that era who weren't familiar with the Righteous Brothers. But the only reason I know that song is because it was in Top Gun. Top Gun. Yeah. The original Top Gun, not Maverick. But even so, like, the Righteous Brothers, wow. I mean, knock it out of the park with voices mm-hmm. you cannot replicate. Mm-hmm. Once again, he cannot overshadow the Righteous Brothers. Mm-hmm. Nobody can sing that song but like the Righteous, the Righteous Brothers. Brothers. Nobody. Exactly. Yep. Wow. It was around this time when Phil also started making television appearances. Mm-hmm. He appeared as himself on an episode of I Dream of Jeannie. He also made an appearance in Easy Rider with Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper as a drug dealer. He basically started becoming a celebrity in his own right. Uh And this had never happened before with a record producer at the time. Like, you are a music producer. That's all you do. Right. But then he started branching out a little bit more and making, like, all these little appearances. Uh However, this could also be looked at as a detriment to his mental health and the success didn't quite sit well with him, like I said before. Like, he had this weird, I need the attention, uh-huh. but I'm nervous with the attention. Right. Like, this weird, I guess, maybe it is that. Yeah, and he gets angry when he has the attention. Like, he does yeah. Oh, God, yes. So, Phil reflected on this specific time with Mick Brown saying, quote, You're never going to be successful if people don't hate you. And that's what everybody hates about me. Oh. If you come down to what really people hate about Phil Spector, speaking of himself in, in third person, yeah. it's that he controls everything. And it's too fucking bad. But 40 years later, you're still singing the same fucking songs you were singing 40 years ago. How about that? End quote. Yeah. I mean, he's right, but you shouldn't be he's saying right. that. He's right. Too he's, fucking bad. He's absolutely <laughs> right. But you know what? Him saying that is just, it's like it overshadowed, his ego is overshadowing his accomplishment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but he's right. But he's wrong. But he's right. But he's, he's right. I mean, we still sing You've... I don't know anybody who doesn't yeah. know You've Lost That Love and Feet. Absolutely. Like, I don't know anybody who doesn't know that song. Yeah. So he was absolutely dominating the music scene in the mid-1960s. Uh-huh. But at the same time, he's like, okay, I need to take a fresh look at this. I've been doing this wall of sound, this unique style for quite some time. I need to reinvent Phil Spector. 
and make a new Phil Spector record. Uh-huh. Who else other than Ike and Tina Turner? Oh, he, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. I had no idea. So Phil recalled going to see them perform. Uh-huh. And he saw Tina on stage, and he was just, like, absolutely mesmerized by her. Uh-huh. And he said, if I could make a number one record with her, she would sell it. She would go to Las Vegas. She would break the color barrier. Yep. She would really be able to do it. And he just felt that with her upon first sight. Yeah. The only obstacle, Ike. <laughs> he needed to convince Ike Turner huh. he wanted to do this, like, that that it was possible. You hear you have Phil, the little egomaniac that he is, and then you have another egomaniac, Ike, and then yeah. the talent, the real talent is Tina. It's Tina in the middle. In the middle. Oh, my God. Okay. How do you think it went? <laughs> no, but you're going to tell me. <laughs> no idea. Well, Ike and Tina, of course, were an inseparable unit at that time. Yeah. As we know, Ike had a bit of a reputation for being protective mm. over Tina. Mm. He was also known for being a tough guy, carrying around guns. Sounds a lot like Phil. Mm. Uh, did not being able to tolerate much nonsense. But Phil went to Ike anyway and tried to persuade him. On a recording, I heard Ike actually saying, quote, Would I agree to let him do it the way he wanted to do it, without interference? And I told Phil with his reputation, why would I interfere? If you think you can do it, take a shot, end quote. So he was basically saying, I know who you are. If you think that you've got it based on your reputation, that you think this can happen, do it. He agreed. Of course, Ike agreed. And Tina would go to Phil's house almost daily for rehearsals. Phil produced a song called River Deep Mountain High. In a recorded interview with Tina, she later recalled that the song had such big energy. And when her voice came out with all the, like, the overlays and everything that they do with the music, she's like, it didn't sound like me, but it sounded amazing. And both she and Ike were very, very impressed by the final product. River Deep Mountain High became an international success, but not in the U.S. It barely oh. broke the 40s on the charts. Like Really? The, from what I saw, it was like 49 for like the time that it had come out. You know, like top 50s, it was 49. Phil wasn't too happy about this. He was a little disappointed, and he told Mick Brown, quote, The Beatles came out and said it was the greatest record that they had ever heard, speaking of Ike and Tina Turner. So it became number one in England, end quote. He was like, I took out American ads on the radio, and I tried to push for it. And he said it hurt him badly. And he said, quote, Benedict Arnold was right, end quote. He told that to Mick Brown. Mick Brown is English, is British. Yes. So Mick was like, what do you mean by that? What do you mean mm-hmm. by that statement? Phil said, quote, Benedict Arnold was a traitor to the Americans, and he joined the English forces against George Washington, end quote. Basically saying that he was pissed and angry that he did all of this, and it didn't do well in America. And he thought, it did better in England than it did here. Why am I even here? Like, Americans were traitors Uh, to him, against him. So at this point, he does the kid pout thing, crosses his arms and pouts and says, I'm not going to make any more records. Okay. That was his way to like be revengeful and be like, fuck you, America. I'm not going to make any more records. Oh, my God. <laughs> he must have been a joy to be married to. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> well, we'll get to Ronnie. Okay. We'll get to Ronnie. A lot was crammed into Phil's four or five years, though, of becoming essentially a nobody to the most successful record producer and youngest record producer in rock and roll at the time. Yeah. By the late 60s, he kind of became a bit of a hermit. Like I said, he's after that whole thing with how 
not so good that I can Tina Turner did in the United States. He kind of was like, give you the big F you. So he became a bit of a hermit. He was kind of living off what he already made Uh and, you know, some of the money and stuff from things that he's already produced and became somewhat inconsequential to the music industry. Then with the rise in popularity of the Beatles, still making it strong, and like he knew the Beatles back in 1964, and this is like the late 60s now, and they're still freaking rocking it, he started to get interested in producing again. The Beatles were about to record what would be their final album, Let It Be, and they actually asked Phil Spector to produce it. The, The album ended up getting a Grammy, and Phil went on to produce more albums here and there, Uh Two of them for John Lennon specifically, one being Imagine, the song that produced, or the the album that produced the song Imagine. Yeah, wow. Now, Phil recalled this time in his life regarding his relationship with John Lennon. They just had a love for one another, a love for the music, a love for what, how John would sing, what Phil would do to help produce and put it all together. And Phil said, quote, he loved the way I work. He loved the way I thought. And he was like a brother I never had, end mm. quote. Now, while he produced two of Lennon's albums, Phil did at this time, especially being around John Lennon, drink heavily. Yeah. And between the two of them, when they were like recording for their albums, there was just like this impairment between both of them. Yeah. Lack of concentration. Things were kind of getting out of control. The more drunk. Uh-huh. Probably a little bit more drunk than they should have been for what they were doing. Uh-huh. So he did produce two of Lennon's albums, and there was a time where Lennon was going through some difficulties with Yoko Ono, and he said, hey, Phil, let's get together and do another album. They were going to do basically like a rock and roll classics type of album. Okay. Now, during these sessions, they got very drunk. There was one time that Phil pulled out a gun, not necessarily threatening Lennon, but he did brandish it, and he fired a shot into the ceiling. Lennon was all pissed. He's like... You're trying to damage my ears, Phil. Yeah. The next morning, someone came out, somebody from the studio, whatever, t- took the bill- bullet out of the ceiling and they realized. So John Lennon thought it was blanks. It was a live round. And that this is the first time they realized that Phil Spector was carrying live rounds with him everywhere he went. Oh, my God. Oh, boy. At this time, too, he's pretty deep in his relationship with Ronnie, the lead singer of the Ronettes. The Ronettes had broke up at that point. And she was thinking, you know, I'm going to be with him and he's going to really help me with my career, like as an individual artist. She was interviewed by Gail King, (laughs) Oprah's BFF. And she said, quote, I was madly in love with him. I was in awe of his writing, his producing, just the way he was in the studio telling musicians what to do, end quote. And as you know, Phil and Ronnie got married. When Phil decided he would retire, this was only two months after they got married. Ronnie was thinking, okay, great. You're going to retire. You're going to devote this time to me. Help me build my career. But that didn't happen. She had no idea when he retired, he was going to just quit. She was raised with like family and togetherness and doing things together and people all around her. And when they got married, it was like just turned into like a darkness for her. Okay. The ambiance, even in their 23 room mansion was dark everything was dark the lights were always out it was like everything was just really really dark and Uh she was isolated yeah there was no rock and roll no music nothing for her to do yeah and phil stopped calling her ronnie he started to call her veronica and then he demanded the servants that were there to call her mrs specter oh essentially what ronnie was thinking that that he was doing was removing her subconsciously or consciously 
from being part of the Ronettes and from the music industry by doing like some kind of like psychological right impact to her by you're you're Veronica you're not Ronnie right oh yeah yeah and then she said quote when he went into a recluse I went end quote and basically I mean he just isolated her he would quote unquote let Ronnie go out on occasion but <laughs> he would place a plastic blow up figure of a man in the passenger seat of the car so that people would think that she was with someone and that nobody would hit on her. Oh. She, she told Gail King in that interview, quote, that was the only way I could go out was with the inflatable man, but it was better than going out at all. That's crazy. I didn't tell Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> so Phil also decided that he and Ronnie needed to have a family. He comes home one day with Dante, a son, that he adopted and gave to Ronnie as a gift. Wait a minute. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh-huh. He then adopted twin boys one year, around that same time, and Ronnie told Nedra, the person that was the Ronettes with her, quote, he gave them to me for Christmas, end quote. Twin boys. Human beings. He gave them to me for Christmas. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Ronnie's coming to the realization that I I need to escape. Like, I need to get out of here. Uh Ronnie's mom was with her on the day that she actually did leave, and Phil tried to prevent her by taking her shoes, but she did end up literally running from the house and running from Phil barefoot. Wow. Now, as the 1970s progressed, Phil became increasingly reclusive. The most probable and significant reason for this was as a withdrawal, according to his biographer, Dave Thompson, was that in 1974, he was seriously injured he was thrown through the windshield of his car in Hollywood. He was almost killed. And it was only because the attending police officer did detect like a slight pulse that he was taken to the hospital or else he would have been declared dead at the scene. He was admitted to UCLA's medical center on the night of March 31st, 1974. He suffered serious head injuries that required several hours of surgery with over 300 stitches and more than 400 to the back of his head. His head injuries that his biographer suggested that that was the reason why Phil began his habit of wearing outlandish wigs years later. Oh, okay. Have you ever seen, like, pictures, his mugshot pictures from, like, 2014? Yeah, all I can think of is the hair. So that's not his hair? That's a wig? He had a lot of wigs. He didn't, and so he did, he later would deny wearing wigs, uh-huh. but yes, he wore wigs. Wow. And on the documentary I watched, the guy who actually customized and made his wigs was like, yes, he was in here and we spent hours trying to get the perfect fit. So all this mental illness now, brain injury, what else can go wrong? I mean, oh boy. What else can go wrong? (laughs) So he did reemerge later in the 70s by producing and co-writing a controversial, what would be controversial, 1977 album by Leonard Cohen called The Death of a Ladies' Man. Do you know who Leonard Cohen is? Yeah, it didn't sound familiar to me. But during the first day of recording, Phil asked Leonard to record some vocals that very day. And Leonard was like, you know what? We've been kind of talking, doing this for a while. Can I come back? I'll I'll do it tomorrow. He was tired. Didn't think that he would be able to give it what it needed for the first day of recording, right? Phil took out a gun, put it up to Leonard's head and said, quote, you're gonna go out and sing this now, end quote. Now, Leonard was asked later, like, why did you stay? <laughs> like, and he said that he just, he stayed to work with Phil because he was fascinated by Phil's electricity, his chemistry, and it just seemed worthy to continue and see this through. Okay. Huh. Does the story, is the story true? Uh-huh. I don't know. Phil did get begin to get a reputation in the industry for 
you know, being a little bit crazy, a little bit of a madman out there, he would get the occasional bone thrown at him for, like, work. Yeah. Which included what would be his final record that he produced with the Ramones in 1980. Phil's role and idea of what a producer should be was of 1960 huh? and not 1980. Yeah. The role turned into a less active role and more of a, a, a facilitator for the artist and less direction. Huh? Like, less of a director and more of a facilitator, right. I guess. Now, rumors circulated for years that Phil had threatened members of the Ramones with a gun during some sessions. Didi Ramone claimed that Phil once pulled a gun on him when he tried to leave a session. Drummer Marky Ramone recalled later in 2008, quote, They were there, but he had a license to carry him. He never held us hostage. We could have left at any time, end quote. Like, he was just using it as a yeah. intimidation thing, I guess. Uh -huh. Never really held anybody against their will, but that's actually going to kind of come up later. His sons, Gary and Dante... They both said later that their father, quote, kept them captive as children and that they were, quote, forced to perform stimulated intercourse, end quote, with one of his girlfriends. Now, according to Gary, he said, quote, I was blindfolded and sexually molested. Dad would say, you're going to meet someone. It's going to be a learning experience, end quote. Now, Dante did describe himself as coming from a, quote, very sick and twisted dysfunctional family, end quote. Now, I'm not too sure if, like, Gary and Dante, the, like, the twins, like, if they ended up with Ronnie, because when Ronnie left, she just left. Like, I don't know their story, and that's well, did, probably a whole other episode. Yeah, he, <laughs> Ronnie may not have been on the adoption paperwork. If he's that this much of a control freak, he may have just yeah. adopted the kids and brought them home and, you know, yeah. deal with my decision. <laughs> Well, he did have a – he had many girlfriends. Like, he had many sexual encounters. Uh -huh. And, I mean, like, with his first wife, Annette, he met Ronnie or Veronica, and he was like, you're my wife now. Like, he had women. Wow. He's, but I, I don't it, get He's it. turning like, he, my like, stomach right now with what, what, what the children <laughs> just said. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this one's a little sad. So, in 1982, he had twin children with a girlfriend, Janice Zavala. One, I mentioned Nicole Spector. I, I mentioned her earlier in the story. And another son, Philip Spector Jr. Philip Spector Jr. died of leukemia in 1991. So if you thought he was out of control now, yeah, it just went crazy from here. He lost a child to yeah. leukemia. Yeah. I mean, that's horrible. He lost his father. He lost his son. Uh -huh. It also seems that he lost his swagger. Staying to himself throughout most of the late 80s, 90s, and 2000s. In early 1981, shortly after the death of John Lennon, which also was very devastating for him, he temporarily reemerged to co produce Yoko Ono's Season of Glass album. In 1989, Tina Turner inducted Phil Spector into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a non performer. He was introduced into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1997. And he received the Grammy Trustees Award in 2000. So that, I mean, he was being recognized for some of his earlier work. This is interesting, though. In 1994, Phil wrote a letter to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's nominating committee to oppose the Ronettes from being considered for induction. He argued that the group was not a proper recording act and did not contribute enough to music to merit an induction. The Ronettes were eventually inducted into the hall, but not until 2007 bitch isn't that funny he's a it's crazy. bitter little bitch because ronnie left him <laughs> now he once was asked during this time frame if he was lonely living in a big house all by himself and he said yes it was it was very lonely who wouldn't be lonely i stay in one room uh -huh. with a bathroom and i don't go anywhere like that's all i do 
Do you, you remember Paul Schaefer? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Musician and producer. David and Letterman. On, uh, Le- Letterman. Mm-hmm. Yep. He said that he was friends with Phil and that they would be out. And Phil just would never want to be alone. He would never let him leave. But every time that they went out, like, Paul said that he had to, like, prepare to be coerced to staying because Phil just wanted company. So one night, they were at a burger place. It was Phil's favorite restaurant. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning. Paul's like, Phil, I got to go home. I got to work in the morning. And Phil told him, quote, you're not going anywhere, end quote. Paul said, yes, I have to go to work. He just – so Phil was just at this point where he didn't like to be – alone he didn't like to people to leave and to leave him alone perhaps going way back to that feeling of abandonment as a child yeah you know journalist mick brown when he went to phil's house after he had not been interviewed for like 20 25 years he arrived at phil's home for his interview with telegraph magazine Mm -hmm. he described it as this huge electronic gate opening up into this mansion <laughs> this property look at that behind me oh yes oh my i can't get comfortable in I can, you can't even get i this. can get comfortable in that that that. that definitely has a shoe closet right okay definitely i would say probably about five okay shoe yeah closets. I, think, I think we're good we're good <laughs> this mansion behind me was called pyrenees castle mm-hmm. There's a long flight of stairs. So this is kind of like the backside where you would drive behind it. So on the other side, kind of towards the front of the house, mm-hmm. you would drive up the driveway. There's this huge electric gate that would open. Once you got in past the electric gate, you could follow the driveway kind of back around to the back of the house, which is where you would see it here. Mm-hmm. But before driving around to the back, there was a huge stairwell leading up to the front of the house with this huge door. Mm-hmm. And... 88 steps to be exact, just to give you a picture of how enormous this entry was. And that's this was designed by Phil. Like, hmm. he knew exactly how many steps. And he anytime people came over, he's like, they had to go up the front steps. He wouldn't let them come around. So he told Mick the same thing. You have to walk up the front steps. Wow. He said that Phil, obviously somewhat of a recluse, was considered kind of a wacko and crazy in the public eye for so long. But during his interview with Phil, he was candid. He was honest, and he could tell that during his interview. And he said, quote, it was almost as if he had been waiting for a moment to talk, end quote. Mm-hmm. Waiting for his moment in, in yeah, chance to say his piece, I guess. I don't know. So when the article came out a few weeks later, Mick Brown, he had shipped a preprint to Phil Spector. Mm-hmm. So basically, when it came out in Britain, Phil would have it at the same time. And the day that it came out, Mick happened to be at the office, the Telegraph office. And his editor, Casper, came over and said... What in the hell did you write in that article that upset Phil Spector? And he's like, what are you talking about? I, I don't know what you mean. Like, he was he was fine through everything. Well, they turned on the news. And they immediately, immediately thought that Phil went off the deep end after reading the article. And there's somebody that was murdered in his house. They thought originally that he killed his assistant. Yeah. they didn't Because they didn't know who it was. Especially, like, overseas. I mean, yeah, you, it was... 2003 so i mean you're going to get international news but they didn't know who it was or anything so i thought maybe it was the assistant he just kind of went off the deep end but it was just the interesting the sheer timing of it all yeah like yeah so that night what happened Mm -hmm. february 3rd yeah well i should say that morning february 3rd 2003 on the night of february 2nd he decided to go out with a friend from high school rami davis Mm -hmm. And they went to dinner at a place called The Grill, and he hired Adriana D'Souza, the driver, that night Mm -hmm. for his outing. 
he was drinking quite heavily, Phil. Mm-hmm. And Rami said, I have never seen him drink like that before. He just wasn't himself that night. She said, please don't drink like this around me. Like, you're taking medications. I'm, I'm oh, yeah. She was cautioning him, essentially, yeah. and being like, you probably shouldn't be doing that. Phil was like, ah, I'm fine, and, you know, did what he wanted to do. So they finished eating. Adriano drove Romy back home and then drove Phil back to the grill restaurant. That's where he met waitress Kathy Sullivan okay. and said, hey, you want to go have some drinks with me? She agreed, and they went to a place called Trader Fix. Kathy said that they ordered drinks. She got an Emirato Sour, and he got a Navy Grog. I didn't know what a Navy Grog was, but apparently it's equivalent to six drinks. Oh. Like six alcoholic drinks. Wow. As the night went on, he got drunker and drunker. Hmm. They left Trader Vix and went to a place called Dan Tana's. Phil ordered another Navy Grog. Mm. Now it's getting close to midnight. You know, Kathy is kind of like... All right, you know, I'm kind of done, you know, drinking and everything. But he wanted to go to the House of Blues. But she did go with him to the House of Blues. There was a lady named Lana Clarkson that was working the security at the front door. She had no idea who Phil Spector was. And he was demanding to go to, like, a VIP area in the House of Blues. And he did that whole, don't you know who I I am? She said, I'm sorry, ma'am. I don't know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) Because of his wig. He didn't take offense to it or anything like that, but she did call her supervisor. Mm -hmm. Her supervisor came over and said, yes, 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 this is Phil Spector, and treat him like Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd owned the House of Blues at the time. Kathy Sullivan, like, she gets there, she orders a water, and Phil's like, you can leave. You're not going to be here anymore. So Adriano takes her home, and he stays there. Because Kathy had left, Lana came over and was like, hey... You know, is there anything I can do for you, Mr. Spector? Do you need anything? And he's like, yeah, you can sit down and have a drink with me. Okay. And she's like, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm working right now. And he insisted, he insisted. So she called her supervisor. Supervisor said, no, you're on duty. Uh-huh. Not going to happen. She said, I'm sorry, I, I can't. And he said, well, maybe later. At this point, it was around 2.30 in the morning. Phil was getting ready to leave and he was walking out. He did end up stopping and talking to that security supervisor. And at this time, Lana was also walking out. She was leaving. They were closing up for the night. Lana walks out. Phil looks at her and says, you didn't let me in. (laughs) And she's like, I'm sorry, Mr. Spectre. I'll I'll know better next time. You know, when they all walked out, they all kind of all walked out together. Mm -hmm. They got down to the car and Phil began insisting. Well, the security supervisor went back inside. But Phil was insisting that Lana go with him. Uh Come to my castle. Look at my castle. I want to have a drink with you. Blah, 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 blah. She ended up getting into the car because he was just like pressuring her so much. And as she got in, she told Adriano, the driver, she's like, it's okay. I'm just going to have one drink. Yeah. Like, that's it. Kind of like, I'm okay. Like, Mm -hmm. making that eye contact, you know, with him. Like, I'm okay. I got this. But. Right, right. You got, you, I got you. You got me. You got you. you. Right, <laughs> right. They, I mean, Phil is just like, he was He was drunk at the time. Yeah. So they left. They went to the Pyrenees Castle. Mm. Phil Spector told Adriano to stop at the bottom so they could walk up the glorious, magnificent stairs together, all 88 steps to the front door. He's going up the steps. He's drunk. She is trying to kind of like help him walk up the steps and everything. Adriano then, after they started walking up, drove his car around the back and just waited. He was in his car waiting. I mean, that's what he was hired to do was to be a driver, right? So it's about five o'clock in the morning. Adriano remembers hearing a noise. He got out of the car, walked around the property, and was like, everything kind of looked normal. Uh Then he saw Phil open the door and had a gun in his hand. Phil said, I think I just killed someone. Jesus. 
Now, Adriano looked in the doorway, looked, and he saw Lana lying there in the chair, as I described kind of at the beginning, like all slouched and everything. He started to run first, and he was like, I don't know what's going on. I'm out of here. Yeah. Then he was like, wait, I have a car. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes back, he gets the car, and he drove into a point where he kind of like felt he could pull over, and he called 911, and that's mm-hmm. kind of where the story started, right? The 911 call. Mm-hmm. So police get there. It's a media circus. Police get there. They, they arrive at the Pyrenees Castle because it's 5 o'clock in the morning. So it's, it's going to make news pretty quickly yeah. for like morning news. It was Monday morning. Mm-hmm. It just became a media circus. Detective Richard Tomlin said that the general feeling in Los Angeles at the time was that no celebrity was ever going to get convicted of anything. They had just come off the heels of O.J. Simpson, mm-hmm. Robert Blake. Uh, like, yeah. So they were kind of feeling the pressure. Yeah. Paul Fournier, another homicide detective, said that Phil Spector is, quote, someone who is used to being in charge. Coming into the investigation, that was at the top of my mind. So big producers right now, they're being looked at at murder. So here we go. Yeah. The next OJ trial, Ugh. end quote. So initially investigators, they didn't know who Lana was. They, like, they didn't know who she was at all. At the scene of the crime, her two front teeth had been blown out from the gunshot. Oh, my God. God, he they shot found... her in the face, basically? Yes. Oh, my. We'll kind of get a little bit more into some of the evidence, but they found her teeth in a couple different places on the floor kind of in front of her, and then there was some pieces of her teeth that was on the staircase, which was about 10 to 12 feet away, like the staircase going up to the second floor. Eight steps? Huh? No, no, <laughs> no, I don't think it. Another staircase? Steps. Okay. <laughs> this was an internal staircase. Okay, okay. <laughs> Not the grand entry, the 88 <laughs> steps. Where Lana was found, there was a desk right next to where she was laying, and there was a drawer that was partially opened. Inside that desk was a holster that matched the gun that was found under her feet. Like, under her feet meaning, like, it was tucked. Like, her, if her feet, like, because her feet were stretched out. Yeah. And if you think if they're, like, angled like this, she's sitting in the chair here. Right. And her feet are angled like this. It was, like, stuffed underneath her feet. Really? Yeah. The gun that was found was a thirty-eight caliber revolver, and it did match the holster that was found in the drawer. They continued to search the house. There were multiple weapons that they recovered throughout the house, weapons and ammunition. And there were like five or six guns found just in his bedroom alone. Now, this is weird. There was a few bloody towels that they found as well in the bathroom. One that they thought was a towel was actually a diaper, which I thought was kind of weird. He wore diapers? Was he incontinent? He might have. Yeah. Eighty-eight he steps. Might it's a long flight. You need to stop. <laughs> Maybe all this evidence. Oh, they also found in the bathroom and in his bedroom. They found a lot of his medication that he was on. So all that evidence was collected, turned over to the crime lab. Amidst everything that they went through, that they found that they collected, there was still like nothing originally that said what happened. Yeah, they had no idea what happened. They just knew that. There was somebody who had died in his house. Yeah. Now, they needed to look into Phil Spector and see, was this some kind of pattern, similar incidents that kind of happened in the past? Mm -hmm. They were able to discover the incident at the recording studio, Mm -hmm. the incident with both John Lennon and Leonard Cohen. But they also found out that Phil liked having people over to his house and liked to lock them inside. Some of the witnesses that they found that the police talked to could confirm that they were locked in. Sometimes the, the drivers would have to come in and get them. Sometimes they had to open up windows to get out. Wow. 
like once they were inside, he's like, he just didn't want them to leave. He just wanted them to stay. Oh, that's freaky. That is creepy as fuck. Now, the night of the incident, they did do a a toxicology on Phil. Mm. And it didn't show much medication that was in a system that he was prescribed. He did have a BAC level of 0.19 when it was collected on Mm. February 3rd. Mm. Now, later on, they received a phone call, like probably within a couple days, they received a phone call saying that they saw Phil Spector at the House of Blues and he left with a co-worker of his. Lana Clarkson. So they were able to eventually identify like who she was. She was a beautiful actress. She's six foot tall. Talk about a blonde bombshell. She was absolutely beautiful. She was in 17, I mean, quote unquote, B-rated movies. Now, at the time of her death, she was also allegedly authoring a book about the men that she had known in Hollywood. And first reports would say that she and Phil had never met up until that night. And that was demonstrated by some of the witnesses kind of and what had happened. Uh-huh. Other people would kind of, you know, rumor that they had known each other for some time because of how she was talking about the men that she yeah. had known in mm-hmm. Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Phil was definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. In Phil's defense, he said Lana killed herself with his gun. Detectives, of course, had to be objective in this. They had to let the evidence kind of lead the way into... Ruling in or out homicide, ruling in or out suicide. And essentially, they had to to consider the possibility that anything could have happened. Yeah. So they did look into Lana as well. They had to find out, like, who she was, what her mood's like, her personality was like. They just did, like, this forensic dig into her life to basically help determine if she was suicidal or not. Like, did she seem like she was hopeless and... I would say the typical signs, but sometimes there are no signs when people commit suicide. Either way, Phil saw himself as a martyr Uh in the murder of Lana Clarkson. He said he was being victimized for being famous. And he called the district attorney Hitler. (laughs) And he said that his co-workers were stormtrooping henchmen that were seeking an indictment to censor him on any means possible of evidence and to get the truth out. Now, he said this, like, on, you know, like, before going into the courthouse and stuff, like, being interviewed. He said this to them live. (laughs) He was making comments to the media about how she killed herself and that the district attorney was pursuing charges without evidence. And he said, it's not my, basically my position to explain to you why Lana killed herself. I just happened to be there. Now, Lana's mother, Donna, she knew Lana was going to be very special when she was born. She, at the age of two, was already very theatrical. She loved to perform. And she would tell her mother that she was independent at the age of two. And she's like, Lana, what does independent mean? And Lana said, I do things for myself. Like, she was just that. Uh Now, unfortunately, Lana's father would pass away when she was 16. He was a miner. And there was an accident in one of the mines. The sprinkler system was clogged and her father went up to like try and unclog the system. And as soon as he got it open, all of a sudden a full dose of cyanide like kind of puffed out in his face and he died. Oh my God. Now this is tragic. That was like huge tragedy. He was only 34. My God, that's terrible. Yeah. Donna said that the family was very close and it was a very difficult time for them, but they did persevere. And they supported one another as best that they could. She did have, Lana was the oldest of three mm-hmm. siblings. Donna, now a single mother and a widow, Lana was able to convince her that she could help the family. And she needed to get a job, but she had to get, she had to finish high school early. She was only 16. She wanted to get into modeling and she could have. I mean, beautiful, thin, like six foot, yeah. 
blonde, yeah, 80s, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> so she stayed in Los Angeles, and then Donna and the other two children moved to Napa Valley. Lana was always very independent, and Donna said she didn't have any issues with Lana staying and working, and Lana was able to ha- handle herself pretty well. Mm-hmm. Lana was described by those who knew her as energetic, optimistic, very tall, like I mentioned, six foot tall. Full of life, sparkled, like you couldn't miss her. When she walked into a room, yeah. you just noticed. Yeah. And when Lana was 19 or 20, she went to Europe. She lived in Italy for about a year. Oh, wow. And she did a photo shoot for an Italian wedding magazine called Sposabella. Ooh. And her layout was in the very first few pages. After about a year in Italy, she decided she wanted to come back to the United States and be an actress. She would talk about how she would have good intent, like people would tell her, especially these men in this industry, would tell her, oh, I can get you this, oh, I can get you that, chick is gonna do a little something for me. All they wanted was sex, and she was like, she was upset by this, but she didn't let it hold her back. She just, it just rolled off her back like water on duck feathers, and she said, I'm gonna make it anyway, and basically, she put up with whatever shit she had to put up with, but she persevered. Yeah. In one recording, she might have been doing like a stand-up or it was something that she was performing and she was kind of giving a little bit about her life to the audience. And she was joking and saying, you may recognize me, you may not recognize me, you may not want to admit that you recognize me. Because she was like a B-rate, you know, B-rated movie star, whatever. And she said, no, you're not going to recognize me in pornos. I don't do those. (laughs) Like just joking and (laughs) stuff. And she said, quote, I've played probably every sex pot bimbo you could imagine. End quote. <laughs> She's been a flight attendant, a showgirl, a hooker, a mistress, a masseuse, a hooker, a warrior, a hooker. Apparently, she played a lot of hookers. Yeah. Like she was kind of making this this joke about her her career, right? But she was in a TV appearances as well, such as Who's the Boss? Oh, Fantasy Island. Okay, the original Night Court. Okay. Night Rider. And she was also in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, the movie. Oh, with um, Phoebe Cates. Phoebe Cates was a was a knockout. She was a bombshell oh, at the time, Lord, too. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, she wasn't like, I don't know. People were saying, like, and it, it, it was one of the things that I, I saw was basically she was only known as being a B-rated movie actress. And right. anytime any news would talk about her, it was the B-rated movie actress oh, yeah. who was killed. No. So. It's like, yes, she was an actress, but she was also human. Yes. You know? Yeah. And that, and what you just read off seems like she, she was getting started in, in a really yeah. good path. Yeah, absolutely. So she would kind of make her way, do these, you know, these different movies and everything and kind of started making her way, really launching kind of her career. Mm-hmm. But there was an incident that happened. Mm-hmm. She was at a friend's house. She was dancing with the kids in like another part of the room. Like the kids were doing all these dances. So she was out playing with the kids and they were all dancing. She was wearing six inch stilettos. She fell and broke both of her wrists. Oh my God. That's. Yeah. Wow. So she's like, I don't know what to do. I got to get a job. She thought maybe if I work at the House of Blues, I'll have a chance to still have interaction with like celebrities and like still kind of like keep my name out there. Right. What investigators did find is Lana never talked about suicide. She was, like I said, she was kind of at the peak of really getting into her career. Yeah. They felt the evidence did not add up to suicide, Mm -hmm. but that Phil Spector killed her. Yeah. The way investigators found Lana's body in the chair with her purse around her shoulder indicated that maybe she was trying to leave. Mm Mm-hmm. She was being held against her will, just like previous people had happened before. Uh-huh. Now, the autopsy showed that she had a bruise on her tongue. 
Now, what this indicated was the gun was forcefully put into her mouth. If she was going to commit suicide, why you're not going to force right. the gun inside your mouth. Right. It was done intentionally. Wow. <laughs> now, obviously, I mentioned Spectre was detained, but he was released on a million-dollar bail while awaiting trial. It took four years for trial. Hell, man. Oh. I know. Presiding Judge Larry Paul Fiddler allowed the proceedings in Los Angeles to be televised. On September 26th, he declared a mistrial because of a hung jury. Ten of the two were for conviction. Huh. So, wow. But they couldn't agree, so they declared a mistrial. The retrial was in October of 2008. Judge, The same judge, Judge Fiddler, again was presiding. This retrial was not televised. Huh. Phil was once again represented by his own same attorney, and the case went to jury in March of 2009. 18 days later, on April 13th, they returned a guilty verdict. Additionally, Phil Spector was found guilty of using a firearm while in, in the commission of a crime, which can be like an added charge into like murder. Yeah. And you're using a weapon, because you don't have to necessarily have a weapon or a firearm to murder somebody. Right. right? Like an aggravated, so, right? Don't they add like aggra aggravated or yeah. something? Yeah. So this added four years to his sentence. He was immediately taken into custody, of course, at the trial. And on May 29, 2009, he was sentenced to 19 years to life in the California state prison system. There were various appeals, 2011, 2012, 2016. They were all unsuccessful. Wow. Now, the California Department of Corrections photos from 2013, they were released in September 2014, showed an obvious deterioration in Phil Spector's health. I mean, he had like... No, like when he couldn't wig. wear a wig, and there was a reason why he was he. There was a reason why he was wearing a wig yeah. because when you see him without the wig, yeah. you're like, oh, okay, I got it. Yeah. Didn't look anything like him, uh. and he has really big ears. <laughs> <laughs> he had been an inmate at the California Healthcare Facility, which is a prison hospital, mm -hmm. since October of 2013, and in September of 2014, it was reported that he lost his ability to speak, basically saying he had laryngeal palma. Papillomatosis. Sounds like the papillomavirus. Mm -hmm. Oh, is, yeah. HPV. It sounds like. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's the same thing. He was taken to San Joaquin General Hospital in French Camp, California on December 31st, 2020. And then he was intubated there in January of 2021. Spectre died at an outside hospital on January 16th at the age of 81. Spectre's daughter, Nicole, attributed her father's death to complications also with COVID-19, which he was diagnosed with in December of 2020. He would have been eligible for parole this year. He didn't deserve parole, so. but okay. No, I mean, he didn't deserve, but he would have been eligible for, par yeah. for parole this year. And that's my story of Phil Spectre. That's fucking crazy. <laughs> that shit is crazy. I got to see a picture of him now. There is so, I mean, it was, a, it, this is a long story. Yeah. But there was so much more that could have been included. It, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many layers to it. Yeah. Like more. I mean, there's more people that he produced and more incidents that had happened. But I included the ones that I thought were pertinent to kind of keep a theme or like a, you know, yeah. kind of thing. But yeah, I he's not a, I, as talented as he is. He may. I mean, obviously, he's super, super talented. And he was he's a mm -hmm. trailblazer and all those great things. Doesn't make him a good person. And the fact that he put his own children, adopted children, in harm's way, <laughs> I already thought... Allegedly. Allegedly. But I, yeah. I think so far, everybody that was in his world had to suffer Phil. Everybody. Down to the moment you walked up to his house, you had to suffer this horrendous staircase. 
down to mm-hmm. not being able to like it seems like everybody in his orbit had to either had to suffer him like had to suffer his personality yeah. his controlling his neediness he's oh ugh. well so his daughter nicole doesn't think that he murdered her she knows that he had a drinking problem. She knows he has a mental health problem. She knows that he was drinking while he was taking medication. And they've had, like, open conversations while he was in custody. Yeah. Like, just various different things about him. Huh. She doesn't really think that he killed Lana. Huh. She thinks it was an accident. Well. And she actually said, even as a growing up, he was very loving. And he was very close. They had a very close relationship. Yeah. I, so. I, that's fine. I I don't yeah. I don't know like he's had maybe because it's his only daughter. Yeah, I I think that you know maybe she's just trying to save some grace with the fact that she's his daughter. But yeah, also it's not like the first time he whipped out a gun and or shot it in the house. And I think forensics could tell if somebody shot somebody as opposed to somebody shooting themselves in the face. Well, I mean it's it could be possible with the with yeah. how her hand would have been with the gun. I don't know. And I kind of mentioned this before, like, I don't know if she would have shot herself if it, the gun would have landed in the position that it was in. That would have been very questionable to me. Also, the witness account that he had the gun in his hands when he opened the door and said, I killed somebody. That's the other thing is Adriano said he had the gun in his hand and then Adriano left. So Phil, maybe like, you know, freaking out, uses a diaper, uses blood and like tries to like clean himself up. Shit himself. Yeah. In places... <laughs> Well, I mean, it was pretty bloody, though. If you go in the mouth and there's teeth that are shattered everywhere, it was pretty bloody. But I don't, I'm not in in my, I mean, obviously doing investigations and everything. We would would consult a forensic specialist for this. But, like, I I cannot see the gun landing in the position that it was found in if she would have done it herself. Yeah. It was just in too awkward of a a place. And it was obvious that it was planted. Yeah. There. Nicole, yeah. I, I'm sorry this happened to your father. Nicole, I I, under, I I couldn't imagine the pain, but if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's usually a fucking duck. Sorry. Yeah. But I, he's as guilty as guilty could be. He did maintain his innocence until he died, so. But, yeah. I mean, he was convicted for a reason, you know what I mean? I don't think, yeah, I don't think he would, he seems very egotistical. I don't think he would have admitted. It. No, I don't think he ever would have admitted any, any yeah. wrongdoing. No, yeah. No. Oh. Ew! I don't like you! I'm gonna have nightmares. I don't like Spectre. Seriously, that's a crazy freaking case. I didn't know all that. There was a lot. I recommend. So there's a four episode series on Showtime called Mm -hmm. Spectre. Okay. I recommend watching that. I've watched that. Uh, I've done so so much research. Like it's gonna haunt me, and I'm gonna have nightmares. So I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out now. Spectre. I need to see a picture (laughs) of him because I vaguely remember him look like a crazy person. But yeah, and he had like this really kinky, permy curl going on. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. And he had. Do you remember the wig that he had that was like a bowl cut? No, I gotta remember the bowl cut look. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. I gotta see it. Like I gotta see it. The the in the documentary, the guy who designed his wigs, they were specifically talking about like that bowl cut wig and how how he wanted it, how Phil wanted it to look, and he was. Like, okay, if that's what you want. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, no. Oh, well, thank you for doing that. That was a big story. Thank you for doing a, that. That was, it was a, an ugly story. You're welcome. That's a doozy. <laughs> that's a heavy hitter. Oh, my yes, Lord. It is. Oh, my God. Well, because we're going to leave you hanging, Chatter, for more information on this case and a picture of Ronnie himself. Well, not Ronnie. Phil. What am I saying Ronnie for? <laughs> Ronnie was his wife. Ronnie, Ronnie Spector, yeah. 
Yes. Ronnie, Veronica. Veronica. For a picture of Phil himself with a wig and without a wig, please check out After That Crime <laughs> Chat, only available on Patreon. And don't forget to follow us, Crime Chat and NatCat, on all of our socials, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, X, and see what we got going on. So remember, Crime Chat with Nat and Cat. when you become a VIP chatter to our Patreon, you'll have access to bonus episodes, behind the scenes, bloopers, and some free merch, and check out some merch in the works. And don't forget to check out our next episode. It's going to be Natalie's story, and yes. even I'm in the dark. You're in the dark. Yes. You don't want to miss it. <laughs> I'm like Ronnie in the dark. <laughs> the darkness of the house. We'll see you next time, chatters. Bye. Bye.